Last month saw one culturally conservative platform launching a new streaming service that offers dozens of television shows, including fantastical stories for children. Interestingly enough, two of our previous guests on Fantastical Truth are now involved with creating these shows, and a third of our previous guests actually works with the company, The Daily Wire, and has interviewed the co-CEO about this new service. Yet you, like us, may wonder a big question whether people known for their politics can do this kind of storytelling well. Shouldn't faithful and excellent Christian creators ignore or suppress all that political stuff in order to make fantastical stories? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent and the publisher of Lorehaven, and I did not vote in the last election because my van was broken. And I'm Zachary Russell, and if you vote for me, you will get some excellent children's cartoons. And this is episode 188, Can Political Pundits Create Fantastical Stories? Now, I am taking a big risk talking about this because unlike Zach, I have not seen any of these new shows. Uh, My apologies to our two previous guests, if they're listening, who have helped to create a show called The Wonderful World of Mabel McClay, I think is what it's called. See, I don't even know the exact title. I'm more interested in the story behind the stories right now, given that I am not under the age of 10. I'm probably not in the prime uh, audience here. But what the audience needs and who the audience is, uh, those are going to be big questions that we talk about in this yeah. episode. That's okay, Stephen. I got you covered. I watched a bunch of shows with my kids, so I'll be, we'll be talking about those. And, uh, but you'll be filling me in on all the uh, backstage, behind-the-scenes stuff that is uh, very interesting. It's, I'm really looking forward to hearing about more of the philosophy and the vision of all of this work they're putting in. And a bit of a disclaimer here, a quick concession stand item, maybe some stale chocolates left over from Halloween. Uh, this company is not a sponsor, but as I will be saying later, uh, out of nowhere, uh, a corporation, a profit corporation, for-profit corporation that's primarily known for politics and hot takes and owning people with facts and logic and even some investigative reporting, uh, out of nowhere, the Daily Wire, uh, really their parent company, Bent Key, has now become a big player in the field of Christian fantastical stories. And for me, who is admittedly a Daily Wire, a listener, at least to some of their personalities, and a subscriber, I did not see this kind of crossover coming. I mean, I guess I did uh, back when they announced they were going to start making or releasing some movies, and then they announced a sort of a competitor service uh, to Disney. Uh, But the fact now that they are making not only their own version of Snow White, a live-action uh, but also making a streaming service based on a Christian fantastical authors series, Stephen Lawhead, that blew me away. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. First of all, however, speaking of an epic fantasy, our top sponsor is Enclave Publishing with the new release coming out later this month from Jillian Bronte Adams of Sea and Smoke. This is book two in the Fireborn Epic series. He rides a sea blood, a steed of salt and spray, born to challenge the tides. Six years ago, the wrong brother survived, and nothing will ever convince Rafi Titrani otherwise. But he is done running from his past and from the truth. As civil war threatens Caridwin's tenuous rule in Soldonia, Rafi vows to fight the usurper sitting on the imperial throne of Nadar, even if it means shouldering his brother's responsibilities as the Empire's lost heir. Enclave Escape presents Of Sea and Smoke, the Fireborn Epic Book 2 by Jillian Bronte Adams, an exciting young adult adventure. It's on sale November 21st of this year, wherever great YA books are sold. 
It will also be available as an audiobook on CD from Amazon and in digital format on Audible, Spotify, and through libraries everywhere. Get those links in our show notes for episode 188 or for this and all the other sponsors of this episode, go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right, faithful listeners, uh, this is going to be a very link-heavy show, so I do want to heartily recommend all of the resources we've included in the show notes. Just look for quotes and notes on top of that page there. Uh, This episode is a direct sequel to episode 178, which actually wasn't that long ago, Zach. Uh, Should we weaponize fantastical stories to own the libs? So if you are still in that frame of mind uh, that you ought not turn stories, uh, turn these plowshares into spears, and then beat your enemy over the head with it, We agree. Listen to that episode and find out. Uh, We've also explored uh, the whole intersection of politics and fantastical stories in at least two previous episodes, number 40 and number 136. And then uh, some of the people I'll refer to in this uh, show, uh, Megan Basham, who's culture reporter with The Daily Wire, Frank Fleming, who's a writer for some of these shows, and Kevin McCreary, who's an editor uh, for Mabel McClay and some of these shows. Uh, Each one of those uh, has their own guest appearance in Fantastical Truth. I think uh, Frank's actually been on twice. And 107 is the most relevant episode. Why is the Daily Wire spending millions to create fantastic shows for kids? So we already talked with him uh, way back when this stuff broke. So this episode is also a sequel to that episode. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard through reliable sources that Jeremy Boring, Ben Shapiro, the others, they're huge fans of Fantastical Truth. And so I'm sure they they listened to these episodes with Megan and Frank and Kevin and said, man, we got to get those guys on the Daily Wire staff. And so... You know what? I'm just trying to be humble here, Stephen, but you know, I just want to say uh, I'm so glad you guys were on the show and you found your success because of that. So, you know, <laughs> I'm just I'm totally kidding here. You just but, remember uh, all the little people who helped get you where that's you right. are. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, we're all all support and uh, all ears here. So, it, here's another disclaimer. It may seem at times like shilling. Uh, it's it's not so much that uh, as it is um, professional courtesy. Uh, looking at folks who are Christians and slash or cultural conservatives who are now big players in this space of Christian made culture, Christian made fantastical stories. Uh, And of course, when we're talking about this uh, company in particular, and some of the others will name check, uh, these are companies that are often being led by Christians and have Christian employees, but are not themselves a Christian company. And it is a company, by the way, a for-profit business uh, which is different from uh, kind of the non nonprofit mindset that Christians often have. Like Zach, I was thinking about this uh, even before writing this uh, episode and, and thinking about one of my favorite Christian-made franchises, which is Adventures in Odyssey. I think technically it is owned by a nonprofit to focus on the family in Colorado Springs, and it has been uh, since uh, 1987 when the Odyssey audio drama got started. Uh, that's a little bit different than from a for-profit company. And one of these days I'd love to have, you know, my, my dream episode would have like somebody from a Christian owned creative business versus a Christian owned creative nonprofit and just kind of ask them, Hey, what are the pros and cons of each one? That may be a little bit more into the weeds, but it may help too, just kind of understand behind the scenes. Like what are the motives behind making these stories? Uh, what are, where do you get the story refined, you know, through the opinions of donors or through the bucks that they spend on your streaming platform? You know, where are the differences? That may be a future episode. From there, let's go to question one here. Chapter one of this episode. Should fantastic creators even talk about politics? I thought about making this a concession stand before I realized, nope, this is part of the main course. And I thought we would just touch on that because, Zach, I still have, and I wonder if you still have this, this little thing in the back of my head, this little alarm bell that goes off, and it probably is good to have it activated. 
whenever I want to post something political. And there was an election last week. It was an off-year election in the United States, so not an even-numbered year. So we didn't have a bunch of federal candidates running, but there were a few state uh, governor's uh, races that I was interested in. Uh, the Virginia State House and Senate, I was interested in that a little bit. And then uh, a rather big proposition in Ohio. We try not to talk about platforms and policies and parties on this podcast, but we will talk about morality, uh, which is the core issue behind a lot of these issues, by the way. Uh, people will say, well, that that's political. Like, no. It was about morality and ethics before it was about politics. So we're not going to shy away from that. Politics, by the way, though, is still part of the real world. Uh, I would say that is part of the truth in fantastical truth. Uh, there's a truth about our world that even in a, a world full of fantasy fiction that isn't real, real people love fantasy fiction. Therefore, fantasy fiction is realistic. I would apply this also to politics, but I'd also say that some knowledge about politics, like how people interact, how laws are made, you know, how you trade one thing to get another, how you do favors, how you try to stay uh, faithful while also compromising with folks. Like all of that is the material of drama. All of that makes stories, I think, more interesting. And I think the more you know about that, uh, the more you can understand some very famous fantastical novels that explore political movements. Uh, Dune, for example, I, I got into late into Dune. It's uh, mainly uh, Zach's fault or uh, Zach's credit. Two years ago, yeah. Dune is a political, but there's so much politics going on. But I don't mean like uh, parties, like modern parties, but just how people interact with each other, uh, how you deal with this group of people who want X and this other group of people who want Y. That's politics, uh, as distinct from public policy. Uh, humans by nature engage in politics. You can't know humans otherwise. So that's why, at least Zach, for my part, I don't mind engaging with these things, at least when it comes to my personal social media or, or on Twitter and such. And if you want my political cold takes, you can go over there and get them. That's partly why I'm also a subscriber uh, to the streaming service. I, I could go in and watch these uh, bent key shows for kids uh, if I wanted to. I just I just haven't had the time. And, and Zach did it because uh, he actually has kids uh, in the target audience. But I am a subscriber to the service, and I do often uh, opine. I'll, I'll share their links and things like that. And yeah, Zach, I'm mindful that this can uh, come across in weird ways to people who maybe still have that divide between a person who's allowed to be a pundit, barely allowed, and, and someone who just should be a creator. Like the, There's a stereotype that there's the artist or the, uh, the Christian minister personality who ought to be above that sort of thing. And Zach, you were telling me, though, earlier, your view, at least uh, as expressed by Thomas Umstead, whether or not that was true of his audience. Yeah. So I, Thomas Umstead on Novel Marketing said there, there's kind of three political groups. There's Republican, Democrat, and don't talk to me about politics. At least in the United States. <laughs> yeah. And uh, a lot of people that just want to watch uh, sports, uh, you know, or just watch the latest American Idol kind of show, reality TV or family sitcom. They're not interested in the news. They, they don't tune into uh, Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson or whoever. They just want to stay away from all of that and kind of stay blissfully ignorant. There's definitely a place for that. I, I don't think everyone is... So here's, here's my quick thesis. I don't think everyone is called to be a, quote, culture warrior. Uh, no just way. like not everyone is called to be a soldier in the military. Well, obviously, Even, some people doing culture wars ought not be doing that. They have gotten very poor training and they need to lay down their arms and go home. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But just on a, on a high level, 
I think not everyone is called to be in that. Because even in the military, not everyone is called to be a frontline, you know, warrior. There's all kinds of different roles, even in the military. But not everyone's called to be in the military. A lot of people are, most people, in fact, are civilians, non-combatants. The, the problem is, you know, Stephen, this, this whole thing you mentioned that aren't we supposed to be above the fray? Well, that could be a particular person's calling, sure. But that doesn't mean that's everyone's calling. And that, I think, right there, I'm just going to stick my finger on that. That's the problem, I think, in evangelical culture right now, that we, we've taken this personal ethic and tried to apply it corporately. Like, I don't feel called to be a culture war combatant, therefore no one should, especially not people in the arts, because I'm in the arts. I don't agree with universalizing personal ethics. I, I think that personal ethic is fine, by the way. But the other thing is, you know, this whole uh, supposed ethic of, well, I don't want to name names and all this kind of stuff. So here, here's my thing. I don't talk about or talk to politicians <laughs> on, online. I, I just don't want to be a political reply guy. I, I don't want to be focused on the the people specifically that are running for office or whatever, because it's more the ideas that are going to last. I, I'm much more interested in the narratives that we take in as a culture and the morals, like you said, Stephen. I, I'm not saying it's wrong to comment about politicians and whatever, It's it, but it's not what I feel called to do. I understand it's what others are called to do. But see, there again, I'm resisting that urge to universalize an ethic. And one final thing I want to say about this, you know, there's a lot of debate right now on, on, I'll say, Christian Twitter about when it comes to even ideas, should we critique by name the people that are promoting those ideas? Is it more polite to not mention names or is that being kind of a wuss, (laughs) just like trying to hide behind this vague sort of language that's not going to offend anyone? I'll just say there's a good debate happening about that, but I I think the problem in evangelicalism is trying to make everyone fit into the same role. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, There's the doctrine of Christian vocation that specifies that some people are called to certain jobs. Uh, Some of this imagery even figures into the parables of Christ, where he's talking about people being given different level of talents and charge over a certain amount of cities. Like All of that is language about stewardship. And uh, politics is part of that stewardship call. I think that if Adam and Eve had never sinned, there would have been some kind of politics eventually. It just would have been glorified. Uh, There may have been some people that wanted thing X and some people who wanted thing Y. And somehow in that perfect alternative world, which we will eventually get back to under King Jesus, uh, a good leader would find a way to make everybody happy. Well, that's not the case now. Uh, Some people want you to do something about the thorns and other people want you to do something about the thistles. Uh, And if you live in a land of thorns and the other person lives in a land of thistles, but it's all under the same land, you're going to look to the king and say, do something about this. No, do something about why. And the king has to decide and prioritize. And a corrupt king will take money from the, you know, anti-thistle folks uh, or take money from the anti-thorn folks. uh, And then it gets really corrupt. And then a lot of people just get sick of the corruption and they don't want to have anything to do with the politics. I would not throw out the baby with the bathwater any more than I would uh, the problems associated with fantasy and fantastic fiction. Sin corrupts good things like politics and figuring stuff out with people uh, is not automatically sinful uh, any more than imagination is automatically sinful. But because of the stigma, I mean, that's part of the real world, too. There's still some people who think, you know what, Uh, if you talk about imagination and stuff and you say anything that someone thinks or could accuse of being political, uh, then you're going to throw away your shot. Uh, You were in a good place and now uh, you're just trying to do some cheap clickbait type stuff. 
Well, Zach, you mentioned that uh, Thomas Simpson had actually polled his audience about whether or not they wanted to uh, to identify with some polit- particular political side and was surprised by the results. Yeah. So Thomas even had said on, uh, I can't remember if it was his normal novel marketing or maybe the, the patrons episode, but he thought his audience was kind of evenly split or probably if there was any group that was bigger was the, the no politics <laughs> crowd. And he said that was that and the Democrat crowd were the smallest and it was the Republican crowd that was the larger one. He said that kind of surprised him. I, I found that very interesting. We are living in such a culture where it is hard to get away from the political stuff just because of how much social media permeates everything and how so much of our cultural narrative gets shaped and driven through social media. You know, there's there's a saying, Stephen, that if you don't watch the news, you're uninformed. But if you watch the news, you're misinformed. <laughs> it's because of, uh, it, it, sometimes it's just watching a little bit of news, just reading the headlines or whatever, you, you tend to get a very warped view of the world. And so, you know, look, I'm just going to confess. Maybe this, is, this is a confession stand thing, but just for more of like a classic confession, I'm a news junkie. And I don't think that's always a great thing. But the thing is, we live in an age of not just information overload, but extremely corrupted information pipelines. I mean, it's just no secret. You look at a lot of the big names and news and they are funded by very big corporate interests. And so they're very much incentivized to shape narratives a certain way. If you just get a, like a tiny bit of news, you get a very, again, like incomplete picture. So, at times, Stephen, I I really dive into things because I'm like I feel like I'm being lied to with with some of this stuff. You you, you get these headlines that just grab you by the throat, and you're like, whoa, what what is you know? There, there's so much emotional reaction that happens nowadays, and it's so finely tuned because of how social media algorithms work that it's it's the most it's the things that incite the most emotions that rise to the top. And so you do kind of have to be a nerd sometimes to really see what is the actual truth of this. I think that being a news junkie is similar to being a different kind of junkie of anything. I'm thinking about video games here. I'm not going too far with the analogy. Uh, If you're a kid and maybe you've been this kid, if you're a kid who just got the game system and had never played this, uh, or maybe there's some mystique associated with video games, And of course, it gives you these nice little dopamine bursts and feelings of achievement. You were the hero. You kept up with the boss battle. Uh, You got to wipe out all the foes and save the princess. Like All of that can be a very heady experience. Uh, Hopefully, though, as you get older, maybe you take a break from video games. You use them in moderation or your parents make you use them in moderation. Maybe take away the game system when you've gotten uh, too obsessed with it, when you should have been doing your homework and chores. Hopefully that teaches you to be mature about your enjoyment about video games. I would apply that same principle to being a news junkie. If you are obsessed over the news, if you are feeling these dopamine hits because you or someone you like uh, owned that enemy out there, you beat him in the boss battle, uh, you defeated the foe and saved the princess, and maybe you weren't doing your homework and chores, well, then maybe you need to get the political system taken away from you. I think that that is a real need that a lot of people have. But for those who have uh, practiced discernment, I believe that Christians who are so-called can engage with these things. Now, Zach, here's a little bit of a difference, is that apart from episodes like this, we don't do that on Fantastical Truth. This is not a political podcast, and that is by design. I think part of practicing 
to engage news and politics and controversies and all of this is to know when to stop is to know what's Monday through Saturday work. And when when is a Sabbath rest? Fantastical truth has some, you know, Monday through Saturday stuff behind it. But I'd say it's largely a Sabbath rest podcast. We're talking about stuff that people do in their spare time, like enjoying stories or, or put something on like an audio book in the background. You know, maybe you're riding in the back of a bus and you're reading a book like that is all downtime, you know, uh, human cultural activities uh, that sharpen our imagination and remind us of what God has made us to be as human beings. So that that's what Lorehaven is about. That's what Fantastical Truth is about. But right now, politics is just so pervasive that we've got to touch on it every once in a while. And I think that, Zach, not just based on Thomas's poll, but based on our experience, largely, I, I, I think the majority of people may say that they don't want politics, but deep down, a lot of people kind of do. And so it goes to that whole, like, what does the audience say they want versus what they really want thing. But I think in terms of our audience at Lorehaven, like, I think it helps people to know where we stand. Now, there are people of different approaches to politics on, on our staff at the Lorehaven. You know, different types of people write for us. Everybody signs on to a statement of faith, but there's no voting pledges in the statement of faith. That would be a heresy, uh, even if voting for the right guys is very important. Uh, we don't do that with people, but we're not a political organization. But that makes it even more interesting to me when an organization that is political starts engaging in storytelling. So that makes me go, whoa, <laughs> this messes with my little system, uh, especially when politics is arguably king of evangelical popular culture. Unlike end times, unlike angels, unlike coloring books or even Amish romances, politics is the actual king, no matter what we say. And we have an episode about that. I can understand wanting to get a little sick of it, but it's still uh, something that we have got to pay attention to. If you hope to engage the culture, you can't ignore the political elements of that culture. Let's talk about engaging the culture for a second. There's a great article written a couple months ago by Chase Repligo of the Pastor Writer Podcast. And uh, he's talking about the reception in Christianity today of the uh, the Barbie movie, Taylor Swift, versus this um, podunk country singer named Oliver Anthony, who had this uh, viral sensation, uh, this, this song that spoke to a lot of conservatives. And basically, Christianity today uh, had very favorable coverage of Taylor Swift and Barbie and very unfavorable coverage of Oliver Anthony. And... Chase was thinking about like, wh- why is this happening? Well, I mean, if you've paid attention to Christianity today, it's really not a secret that ideological tide is kind of shifted to the left. But, but Chase makes a really insightful comment that I want to quote in this blog post. He says, quote, culture flows. Oh, I, I, so let, let, me, let me back up for a second. Chase it ta- is talking here about how pastors like him were trained to see cultural production and cultural goods. And so uh, th- this is what he kind of absorbed through, through seminary, through pastor conference and so forth. He says, so quote, memes, okay. Yeah. He says, quote, culture flows from the urban centers, which produce the arts and education. If we wanted to impact the culture, we needed to influence tomorrow's cultural influencers, producers, and thinkers. These cultural influencers were increasingly liberal. So we assume that the great theological questions of our day would be those raised by the East and West Coast elites. We were wrong, and it is having a lasting effect, end quote. So that's Tim Keller type stuff. Uh, yes. Christians who want to change the culture need to move to the cities and, and be winsome 
uh, and help influence these folks for the sake of the kingdom. A worthy goal, I would say. Yeah, Tor, but but uh, but he perfectly outlines why there is this sort of favoritism towards culture produced by liberals as opposed to conservatives. And further on, he he goes to say, look, yes, a lot of our cultural institutions are politically liberal, but we live in the age of the internet where there are so many microcultures popping up that are completely independent, divorced from these big institutions and that are being driven by conservatives. And so there isn't one culture anymore. But yeah, so sometimes what what I think when people say, well, let's not get political or let's not, you know, engage in the culture war. I, I think people who say this perhaps don't realize that that our default has been that culture is liberal. Like that's our default way of thinking. So if you talk about any culture outside of that, whoa, now you're getting to a culture war. But we just live in such a different age now where where books and music and movies and so forth are being made independently w- without those sort of institutional biases. Right. And that's where we live because we at Fantastical Truth, we also, in addition to not talking about policies and platforms and parties, we're not a general geek pop culture podcast either. Now, we'll talk about those things on occasion. Zach, I think, actually, come to think of it, almost at the same rate that we will talk about these pre-political issues uh, about culture building and morality like this one. You know, every once in a while, something breaks out, then, okay, you know, we'll we'll name check the Barbie movie or we'll have an episode about Dune. But even when I was outlining that episode about Dune, I'm like, we're not going to get into the Dune verse so much as the joys of discovering a new fandom. So we made that a means to other ends. And that's what I want to do with politics related topics here too. make it a means to other ends. And I hope that that helps reassure people too. Uh, I've mentioned this, and I think in our last episode that I think there's a lot of people I actually know one who was much less interested in talking about these issues, like got tired of me talking about my, uh, my daily wire podcast and stuff just because you're tired. You're really tired. You know, politics is an extremely taxing field, even keeping up with the news and all yes. that. You maybe feel deep down, well, I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to get out and vote, but it is, you know, 23 degrees and it is sleeting and I'm really tired. And my kid was up late uh, and my husband's uh, still working late at the job. And you just don't have the space to deal with that stuff. And so it seems, I think, even more obnoxious uh, and taxing. Uh, pun unintended. Uh, that kind of emotional taxation is theft and people are stealing from you. <laughs> See what I did there, Zach? So <laughs> I, I want to be sympathetic to those folks every single time uh, and give you a way out. But what I would suggest is echoing what Zach said earlier. Please do not, therefore, spend your own uh, emotional labor opposing those who are called to these kinds of conflicts, who do have the emotional space and resources to deal with these things. Don't treat them as if they're sinning or unspiritual. Uh, Don't continue the assumption that any Christian who ought to change the culture is called to change every part of culture except the political culture. Uh, There's a lot of mythologies there and a lot of nicey nice stuff that I want to oppose uh, without uh, critiquing the person who's doing this out of a sense of desperation. Just let the political junkies do their thing and hopefully they'll do it for the glory of God and not just to build their platforms. Uh, and then maybe, you know, we can help you out uh, with some of the uh, some of the difficulties you've been having. Uh, but now, like I said, uh, culture makers are increasingly dabbling in both the political punditry and the fantastical story creation. So that is a reality of our world. And we're going to get to that uh, in uh, chapter three. First chapter two, though, we're going to talk about the dangers here. But before that, sponsor two. 
Phyllis Wheeler is back with her new book, Secret of the Lost Dragons. That is book two in the Guardians of Time series of adventure and time travel for readers ages 8 to 11. This is an award-winning, family-friendly book series, The Guardians of Time by Phyllis Wheeler, in which Jake and Ava, age 11, search for their kidnapped dog who is now lost in time, but they aren't alone. They have the help of a 700-year-old alchemist from the Guardians of Time Guild. Phyllis has an endorsement from a reader named Caleb, age 11, who had this to say, great story, time traveling in a clock shop was interesting, cool, and funny. Stop by author Phyllis Wheeler's website for information and a special freebie, the prequel short story at phyllisweeler.com. That's P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-W-H-E-E-L-E-R.com. A special deal, the ebook for book one of this series, The Dog Snatcher, is on sale right now for 99 cents at all outlets through December 12th, 2023, as book two makes its debut. Get those links in the show notes for episode 188. Zach, not a bit of politics there. It's a story for kids, perfectly suited, by the way, for this episode, because we're talking about entertainment for kids, which should be, and I agree with the Daily Wire co-CEO about this one. Stories are pre-political, but sometimes making them can be a political act. What does that mean? We'll get to that in chapter three, but I really want to hit on chapter two first. How has political punditry ruined great stories? Because this is a risk. We're not acting like we're reinventing the wheel here. We are living in a world where major corporations are getting their movies flopping over and over, possibly one as recently as last weekend, because the movies get associated with tip politics. Now, Zach, again, I don't think that actually means politics. Uh, Captain Marvel's not getting on screen saying vote for Democrats. It's just people get a vibe and they use a nickname for stuff and they say, well, that's political. And what they really mean is I find that socially disagreeable. Whether or not it's socially disagreeable is another episode. Uh, I think these kinds of stories that are flopping from the big corporations, the mainstream pop culture are not so much about specific policies and positions, but either the new synthetic moralities that these stories are trying to propagate or the impression that they are. Uh, I didn't hear that there was anything particularly woke about Captain Marvel, unless you think a female superhero is woke, in which case that's kind of silly. How you handle it can be woke, uh, but uh, cultural conservatives have some responses. They get mad rightly or wrongly. And they say, Hey, we need stories too, but they maybe don't understand why and how stories are made or the fact that it takes generations to cultivate this kind of talent. And they also often lack the moral and even theological grounding as Christians to know what stories are even for or how to make them good. Well, about Captain Marvel, there's a great video that's going uh, viral on, I guess, YouTube and Twitter. And it was uh, by a woman and it was like, why Disney and Marvel do not understand women and why all their movies with these female superheroes are flops. She takes particular aim at Captain Marvel and just the portrayal of women that really misses the mark, according to this uh, vlogger. Uh, we, we can link to that. Uh, but, you know, one of the things she points out is how Captain Marvel is sort of the embodiment of ultra-feminist culture and, and the Me Too movement and just a bunch of other political movements. And she's repeating the slogans of these things in these these slogans are being driven by pressure groups that yes, are, are, you know, directly helping the Democrat party. And so th there's a, there's a really obvious through line b between a lot of the dialogue, the story themes and sort of these real world politics. And, you know, here's a, a really easy example. Uh, when captain Marvel shows up somewhere and uh, some guy looks at her and says, Oh, why don't you give me a smile? 
And then for some reason, she takes that microaggression and responds with a macroaggression of like twisting and breaking his arm and then saying, well, why don't you give me a smile now? And it's like, ha ha, you got him. But you know, that, that entire scene is, is a perfect example of all of these movements coalescing. And it's sort of just this whole, uh, you know, conflict theory of identity groups uh, pitting people against each other because of their immutable characteristics and saying this group good, this group bad because of whatever identity marker you want to divide people by. And, you know, that's very much a political movement um, started by a guy named Karl Marx. And it's kind of uh, morphed into all these other things now. But has it ruined stories? Yes. And, and here's directly how this sort of thing has ruined stories. Uh, Disney. Uh, so let's just name names here. Disney is not just making movies with, with these kind of themes or, you know, quotable moments. They are taking directly political action against legislation that they disfavor. So they're not simply building into their stories, things that promote their worldview. They are directly in the legal and political and legislative spheres fighting against things or fighting for things that they like or don't like. That's when things really cross the line. But honestly, I think it just woke everyone up to what Disney's been doing for quite a while, which is trying to come in between parents and children and sort of trying to disciple children in a way that turns them against their parents. And, uh, you know, I, I was listening to this other podcast recently, Stephen, and he said how you know, every generation feels like, oh, what what are the older generations know? I I know better, but it's it's gone way up to like eleven in in this latest generation where people. This was uh, Joshua Slocum and Brett Weinstein on the Dark Horse podcast, and 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 Josh Slocum said, you know, there's this sense of disgust now that younger generations have towards even just the previous generation, like my generation, Generation X, and Disney has very much been a part of driving this that you can't trust your parents they don't know anything we we know what's best for you kids you know kids rule the world that kind of thing and you know there, there's kind of a fun story when like kids have to save the parents or something that, that can be okay and that can be fun there's a star trek episode that my kids and i love it's when the kids kind of save the day or, or another one where the the grown-ups get turned into kids and then they have to save the day those can be fun but when that is the the, the driving narrative that you can't trust the family. I mean, that's, that's very much a political move in a statement. And so Disney, you know, going up against the parental rights and education bill and, and calling that out and, and sending money to fight this, that's a political action. Like that's not just simply, Hey, we have our worldview and, and you have yours too. But I, I would say that that directly killed their brand because now parents are like, whoa, wait a second. You've taken aim at me now and I, I can't trust you anymore. I think this kind of thing has always been happening with the big pop culture making corporations, but not at this level, like not at the level of lobbying for particular legislation or state or federal policy that's intended to propagandize children in the rights of the nation's fastest growing religion, sexualityism, uh, a socio political religious cult, uh, basically, uh, that has uh, taken the world by storm. Like that part is new. Uh, I know corporations have always been, you know, political. That's how you get these stories made at this kind of level. And you know, it gets really corrupt and really gross. 
but you saw less of it, mainly because of the technological limitations and also because public relations people were just a lot more aggressive and hushing those things up. So that's a really good point, Zach, is that Disney and some others, and yeah, we will use names here. I, I do believe we should, uh, rather than being passive aggressive and say a major corporation, like I'd rather just name names, you know, uh, stories ought to name people, uh, name, names have power. So do it. Uh, Disney's been doing this. Other corporations have been doing this. Uh, just recently, Warner Brothers, upon whom may be the curse of the gods, uh, canceled a Wiley Coyote movie for the tax break. Apparently, the movie was completely done, had the music and effects and everything, and they just canceled it. And it threw it in the ground. No and one it should go in the it. Library of Congress and become a uh, public domain because now I would we, agree. the taxpayer, if you're going to throw it. it away like that, go for <laughs> it. Release the coyote cut, by the way. I literally <laughs> am going to join that new movement. I, I, they're going to fall victim to the Streisand effect. I want to see what they were working yep. on here. It seemed like it could have been a big fail or a big blast, uh, just like the coyote himself. So the corporations are engaging in political dirty tricks like this. Uh, but also a lot of this stuff is is just, just gross, making its way into the stories. And now you know or feel like the story is propaganda. Maybe it's not, but if you're repeating tropes like that, then it feels like propaganda and not an organic story. It feels unnatural. Zach, uh, one last shot at Disney. Uh, I got a hold of this actually fairly early, um, back when Zootopia came out. Remember Zootopia? Now, Zootopia, like, I think people would say, well, that, that was a good Disney movie. And yeah, it had a lot going for it. And I imagine some people may have wrongly said, oh, it's political because uh, to a large extent, they handled some of the, you know, racist and prejudiced analogs uh, fairly sensitively in this world uh, with animals, some of whom used to be predators and might be predators again. But the main issue I had with Zootopia was this uh, Judy Hopps, the wabbit who wants to be a cop, uh, who is uh, carrying feelings of prejudice against a fox and other predators. Uh, she has a great story. I like her story. Uh, she finds redemption, in a sense, uh, through repentance and forgiveness for her attitudes of prejudice. And she builds a good friendship uh, with a uh, somewhat shady but uh, heart of gold uh, fox type character. I forget his name. And yet the culture around her, the culture of Zootopia, which has its own you know, pop singers and movies and brand recognition and everything, the culture itself is redeemed not through repentance and forgiveness at the individual level, but through, wait for it, pop culture. Its own pop culture is the means of redemption by the end of Zootopia. And they do the DreamWorks thing where everybody gets together at a big song and dance concert featuring the, you know, the celebrity voice actor that they got to be uh, the celebrity pop performer in the movie itself. Um, but pop culture is, is basically the priest uh, who administers the rights of... Uh, of, of um, forgiveness uh, almost that you just believe sing along with shakira as as the gazelle uh and thereby you will find absolution uh that not only contrasted with the better story they were telling alongside it but it was just gross and really 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 self-serving uh popular culture guys you know music no matter what they say politically or socially like there's a lot of corruption there and i just i found it rather um almost offensive uh, that the movie would have this perfect type character you know this this Mary Sue type celebrity in its own story that was just perfect and just, you know, went in front of the microphone and said, everybody just needs to love each other and we all need to find unity and healing. And I, I just go, wow, that's so, so trite. Uh, and it ruined the story for me. So yeah. that's, that's the irritant on, I would say, the leftist side. But I come into this almost from the opposite because I see the parallels now between that kind of ideology ruining stories uh, but then also uh, the cultural conservatives who say, 
all of a sudden, hey, we need some stories around here. Uh, and so they kind of just throw them together for, for a directly political purpose. Uh, and I would describe that as uh, uh, what Treebeard said about Saruman. He has a mind of metal and wheels and doesn't care for growing things. Now, with Saruman, that was a sin. And he turned from righteousness to evil. With these folks, I think it's more of a personality limitation. You've got folks who are pundits and engineers, you know, more left brain folks who seem to have little regard for the humanities. Why would you go to school for literature and music and languages and stuff? You should go to school for something practical or be better yet. Don't go to school at all. Uh, just to be an apprentice and start your own business and pull yourself by, up by your own bootstraps. Trust me, folks, I listen to this stuff. I hear it all the time, although less now, which is encouraging, at least from the pundits I've chosen. But the ones I grew up with, that's the kind of shit that they would say. And if they liked music and movies and stuff, that was just a trifling thing that they would pursue on the side. They didn't seem to think those things are very valuable. In fact, they almost treated them like a guilty pleasure. I think some of these creators, Zach, want a quick fix for the kids or for themselves to help get everybody ship shape and on the right side politically. And they aren't thinking in terms of free political concerns. These are human beings here. We need music. We need stories. We need imagination before we need politics before, not instead of very important distinction. But Zach, even just organizationally, there's also this problem of grift. And what do we mean by grift? We see that word a lot, right? Because Zach and I spend too much time on Twitter now called X. Like grift, like you're just in it for the money. You're kind of pretending that you believe this stuff, but you don't really. And if the polls showed otherwise, then you would shift the grift. But there's also, this annoys me, Zach. Does this annoy me as much as you? I'll pitch this one to you. Uh, this whole thing, I hear I'm not going to name names because I'm not trying to be a jerk. But this thing where you get a politician or a pundit to write a children's book uh, or do some cultural thing and then you put out that out there and you say oh that's by representative x but it's not by representative x it's by a ghost a ghost wrote that and i don't agree with ghost writing this ain't a writer's podcast so i won't get into it but zach are you as negative about this as i am or or feel otherwise well i totally understand why a politician would need to co-write a book with someone um because they're not writers, but yes, I, I don't like the actual writer being left out of the credits. I, you know, look, I'm going to give Bill Clinton credit, believe it or not right now in this podcast, because he crow wrote a book with James Patterson. Uh, it was called like the president is missing or, or something like that. Our president is kidnapped. And, uh, you know, James Patterson's name was on the book. Now, James Patterson can sell books all by himself with his own name. So, you know, that would just make sense to put his name on there for marketing. If if it had been, you know, Joe Schmo, whatever from, from Podunkville, Texas, by the way, this is, I'm a Texan. I'm not slamming Texans here, but if it was just Joe Schmo, yeah. Would they put his name? Well, everyone would say, well, who's Joe Schmo? Why, why is his name on there? But uh, Hey, at least he, he put his name on there. I don't like the whole like invisible author thing. Cause yeah, you, you know that they didn't write this. So what, what are they trying to convince you about? It's, it's it's more about like you're supposed to believe that this uh, politician is also an incredible mystery novelist or something like that. So yeah, see in Earth Two, uh, there's ghost politicians, and it's actually a famous successful novelist who gets a hankering <laughs> to run for the Senate, and so you hire a guy to go out and impersonate you and say, "Oh yes, I'm uh, a James Q. Patterson from Earth Two, you know where where Spider Man is Miles Morales." Uh, now I'm running for office in addition to being a multi-million dollar uh, New York Times uh, best-selling uh, thriller writer. Uh, that doesn't happen in the real world. It's uh, it's only the authors who get hidden 
uh, behind uh, the mask of the politician who's pretending to be an author on the side. Well, I, I, I still have the same objection to the whole ghostwriter thing, not co-writer, but ghostwriter. Uh, you hide the guy who actually wrote the book and it spreads the lie that anyone with fame and money can be an author and that if you're just an author, well, that's somehow lesser than being an astronaut and an author. Others, I think, are thinking less politically, more humanely about this. And I will say that those are the types of political voices that I find more attractive uh, if that type of person will not be in it for the grift uh, and who make time, unlike the pundits I grew up with listening to on radio, they make time to engage earnestly with culture and popular culture. And they say outright, guys, I'm a podcaster, I'm a pundit, but I'm not qualified to do this. I'm not qualified to do that. Uh, I'm not qualified to be speaker of the house, keeper of the zoo. Uh, it should be another guy who does that uh, and who brokers all the compromises, whereas the pundit doesn't have that kind of luxury. The pundit can afford to be all strident with their opinions, but it takes a different kind of person to be a political leader, and it takes a different kind of person to make stories. And so I like the pundits who understand the differences. They understand, hey, yeah. I'm wearing the pundit hat. I'm going into the pundit mode. But then often they will go out and like talk with people or do like an event or something. And they're not just doing the podcast. Like they're treating people with respect. Uh, they're engaging the questions. And what's even better is that I think some of them are thinking more long term about not just tearing down what's wrong with society today and then getting their paycheck, you know, from the big sponsor of their podcast or TV show. Uh, they're getting a big paycheck. Yes. They're getting a big platform. Absolutely. Uh, but they're also saying things to challenge their own audience. And they are talking about what they think the audience deeply wants deep down underneath the surface level craving for clickbaits and controversy. So that kind of improvement is something that I see and it makes me tempted to shill, but also challenge, but either way, it's something to keep an eye on. And we'll get to that in chapter three. So on our key question here, how, or rather, um, not, not whether punditry is ruining stories, but how it's ruining it. Um, in the, uh, interview we'll talk about in just a minute between Megan Basham and Jeremy Boring, Boring says that politics and punditry is about the urgent, but creating stories, cartoons, books, music, movies, that's about the important, that, that's the longer term investment. Like you were saying, Stephen. And I, I think the way that stories get ruined is to focus on the urgent and, and the temporal um, and really just to pander to a certain segment of the audience by demonizing other people. And instead of creating, you know, laughter, you're creating clapter. Uh, if you've heard that expression before, that, that's kind of what uh, late night uh, television has turned into. And honestly, I blame Jon Stewart from The Daily Show. <laughs> Used to love that show, but it just became very much this pandering, sneering, smug, condescending uh, view of the world. And that's kind of infected all these movies. And uh, let me give you a, a I'm going to name a name here in terms of a movie, not, not a person, but um, a really dear friend of ours, uh, we were talking about, I said, well, my politics is giant meteor right now. That, that's who I'm voting for. I'm giant, voting for the giant meteor. <laughs> And then we started talking about disaster movies and I love disaster movies. And she said, Oh, you might like this new one that came out called don't look up. And I said, well, what's that about? I've heard a little bit about it. And she said, well, it, it's about like a, you know, a meteor coming to the earth, but really the whole thing is 
a parable. I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean, a parable? And so I've, I've looked up the information about it. And, and basically, it's, it's uh, very much a, it, it's pitting like the environmentalists against the climate denier types and, and sort of lampooning those people, those bad people, and kind of lionizing the, you know, climate alarmists or, or whatever you want to say. And so again, it's sort of that clapter type thing where you're taking this urgent, you know, issue that uh, about climate change or whatever, and and making the entire point of the movie to just reinforce that narrative. Um, and this review I read contrasts that to Armageddon, like the Jerry Bruckheimer film with Bruce Willis and others, where it's all these blue collar, you know, oil. <laughs> oil platform guys just kind of roughnecks going up there to just nuke this asteroid it's just a classic hero's journey like it everyone's cheering at the end that really unites people right because it's like about saving humanity well apparently in don't look up there's really not that sort of uh exciting kind of uh i, I won't spoil it i guess but it doesn't seem like it has that sort of raw raw it, it's more about like kind of sticking your tongue out at people and and pointing at those bad people over there and being very cynical about it. And so I, I think that's a good example of how, now, I, again, I haven't seen this yet. And, and this is, by the way, this is no shade on our, our friend that recommended this, but, but I think it's a good example of how movies have, have really shifted into this mode of just trying to embody a certain narrative. Now, I don't want this narrative from the right either. I, I do not want the orange man good <laughs> type movie We've had TV shows like Veep, you know, we, I, I don't want the conservative equivalent of that either. I think that's just really boring because what a story should be about is more long lasting universal values that point people towards deeper truth and not just trying to influence how people vote in the next election. Zach, you said that that kind of approach is boring. So how ironic that it takes a person named boring to try <laughs> to correct that approach. We'll get to that in chapter three. First, let's stop by our third sponsor, which be us, Lorehaven, with the Lorehaven Guild. Speaking of long-term investments into culture building, getting together communities, uh, studying to be more human, not less. That's what we're doing in the Guild, our castle in the cloud at Discord in which we engage in monthly book quests through the best Christian-made fantastical stories we can find. We have a faithful crew of quest leaders who can help you get the most out of these stories. And sometimes uh, the best books are read together. Uh, we just finished one uh, last month of an out-of-print book uh, that a lot of people said that, you know, th this one came out of nowhere. Like We had to get a back channel to get copies because it's out of print. And I saw some people saying that it was much more enjoyable to read that together as a group once you get people together like that, uh, even over long distances, even over a digital community, uh, culture happens, community happens, people start uh, building those relationships, and that stuff is pre-political. Our next book actually touches on politics because it is an alternative history of the Fox Rebellion. Remember, remember the 5th of November. It's Fox by Nadine Brandis. Uh, Elijah David's leading that quest. There's some political stuff going on there, even some religious stuff, but it's all an alternative history. So most of the time you can't tell a uh, really great book there. Uh, the book quest is underway, but probably not too late to get involved. How do you join? Just subscribe to lorehaven.com. We will then email you not only updates for any of our Lorehaven stuff that you want to keep up with, but the exclusive invitation code uh, to portal into the Lorehaven Guild, our castle in the cloud. 
go to lorehaven.com slash subscribe or find that in our show notes for episode 188. Okay, Zach, we come to it at last. Chapter three, how are some pundits trying to do this better? I'm going to go ahead and answer the title question of this episode, by the way. Can political pundits create fantastical stories? My answer is, first answer is yes, but they might not be very good. But the better answer is no, but they can do what they do, know their place, and pay for other people to create the better stories. From all I can tell so far, that is what is happening now uh, at several organizations. But the Daily Wire is unique because you think of them as like this mess of political hot takes and punditry and controversy and owning the libs. But then they announced that they're going to start a Disney competitor. And I wondered at the time, we even had Frank Fleming on in that episode talking a little bit about it as much as he could say. I wondered at the time, like, you got to get a new name for that. You can't just say the Daily Wire for kids and then be like, oh, yeah, that's going to be, you know, uh, this little kid dressed up like Ben Shapiro, you know, talking about the federal <laughs> interest rate, like boring, pun unintended. So they changed the name. It's a goofy name, but apparently has personal meaning for the founder. And you can't call it the boring company like the Walt Disney Company. Oddly enough, there's already a company called The yeah. Boring Company, and they're the literally pouring <laughs> into the earth. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're building those tunnels uh, for the uh, Minority Report, uh, you know, cars to race through. Uh, so they did announce a name change. So it's basically like kind of the same but different, uh, which could be branding confusion. Like I put on my little marketing hat and I go, okay, like you're going to expect political stuff, but they're being really careful to say, guys, this is not political. It is a political act doing it because the other companies are so given over to the bad kind of politics, but the content itself is not. Uh, interestingly, though, um, they tried some streaming movies at Daily Wire, like some very grown-up movies, basically R-rated stuff. Like there's the school shooter thriller, uh, which, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I saw some reviews of these. I, I didn't watch them all, but I saw some reviews. Mixed positive seems to be generous. Uh, I think there's some political opposition to the very idea of them doing it, but uh, also, it seems that either way, even if the movies are good for what they're trying to be, they're for grownups. They're, they're for grownups. They got violence and gritty stuff and, you know, a woman stuck in the pantry, you know, while her stalker is outside. Like, you know, not my favorite kinds of stories and not very fantastical. Well, now they're doing the kids shows uh, and even some uh, and even one movie, uh, their own Snow White remake, which is a bit of a troll. And, uh, and they kind of admit this, but we'll get to that quote in a moment. I mentioned our guests, uh, Frank Fleming and Kevin McCreary, who helped make these shows. So these are guys that we've had on uh, who are fantastical storytellers or who, in the case of Kevin, uh, just has a thing or two to say about uh, the cheesiness of Christian movies and other movies. Fleming is the writer for Mabel McClay and McCreary's lead editor for that show. But let's focus now on a guy we can't have on the show because he's busy in, um, now it's not Romania, it's um, Hungary. Yeah, he's 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 over there uh, getting hungry and uh, he's making a fantastical show, which I also want to talk about. Jeremy Boring is not just a cultural conservative who founded the company and a businessman and an entrepreneur and all that stuff, but he's also a professing Christian. Uh, and I've had a chance to listen to this guy a lot. Uh, some of my favorite uh, programming there are like the roundtable discussions that they do uh, where all the differences of their personalities come out and you find yourself, at least I find myself, not being able to wholly agree with any of them, not even the Christian ones, because they're Christian hosts, their personalities, the Christians have some glitches. I disagree with them politically, or like one person is way too soft on this one guy, and like, I don't like that. But boring is much more story driven. And this really comes out in two conversations he had, which I hardly recommend to our listeners. Even if you're not political, even if you don't care for this stuff, listen, if you can, to his interview with 
Jordan Peterson. Yeah, that one uh, about stories and myth and the business and motive of making them. Also listen to his conversation with Ben Shapiro, in which there's nothing really political or outrageous there. Uh, They're just talking about the difficulty of investing in this kind of generational project as opposed to the urgent type stuff that frankly right now makes the money because that's where the audience thinks their need is. But you can also uh, read this article in which our previous guest, Megan Basham, interviewed Boring about the Bent Key Project. And here's the quote. Megan Basham says, so how do you respond to headlines like the one at the Hollywood Reporter that said that the Daily Wire is trolling Disney with this new Snow White and the Evil Queen adaptation? Do you think that's a fair characterization? And Jeremy Boring's reply is worth reading at length. He says, well, yes, it's an accurate characterization. We are political. The Daily Wire is political. Launching BentKey is a political act. The content at BentKey, however, is not political. It's pre-political. It's for children. I don't believe that children should be cogs in our sort of political war machine. I believe children should be children. But of course, launching the company is political. And of course, making Snow White and the Evil Queen is political. It's a reaction to the political move by Disney to remake their own animated classic, A Tale of Timeless Truth, a fairy tale that was probably centuries old before it was ever written down by the Brothers Grimm that contains the kind of wisdom that generation after generation after generation after generation benefited from. To say, as Disney's Snow White remake actress Rachel Zegler did, yeah, it's not 1937 anymore. Rachel, the story wasn't written in 1937. Those truths existed in that story long before Disney was born or Disney's parents or his grandparents or his great-grandparents were born. To throw that out as though you know best because you have imbibed the du jour woke politics, the crazy, radi- crazy radical ideas of this fleeting moment, that's the very reason Bentke exists. And so responding to that is, yes, a troll of Disney. It's a rebuke of Disney. It's saying to Disney, if you weren't doing what you're doing, we wouldn't have to do what we're doing. But we do have to do what we're doing. Because as I said at the top, I think this is the most important fight that Ben Shapiro or co-CEO Caleb Robinson or Jeremy Boring and the Daily Wire have ever engaged in. This is what I most hope is our legacy. End quote. You can see all that in the show notes. I added a few breaks in there. Zach, I would want to push back on just one thing, and I want to hear what you think about this quote. He says, well, entertainment for children should be pre-political. Maybe he says this elsewhere, but it seems to leave open the idea that when you get to be a grown-up, now you move into the more advanced stuff that is political. I would disagree with that. I think that anyone of any age, Christian or otherwise, but especially Christian, needs imagination that is about timeless human virtues, Christ-exalting truths and beauties. They don't have anything to do uh, with the cause du jour, uh, the urgent news of the moment and the need to take down your enemies. Like, I think that stories of this kind are for grownups just as much as they are for kids. And I imagine they're going to get to that, which is why I think their Snow White movie seems to be not just for the kids, but uh, it seems to be more of a family appeal project. Okay, so I, I've watched through several of these kids shows with my kids now, and so I'll, I'll talk about them in, in a second. But just a, a brief comment, you know, what, what he's saying about entertainment for kids versus adults. Entertainment for kids should be just embodying virtue, right? Just showing uh, positive things, positive portrayals of family relationships, uh, you know, civic duty, whatever, and and not showing all the bad ways that that people screw up. So I, I grew up with The Simpsons, okay, <laughs> and you know I I still love The Simpsons, but The Simpsons is like every which way to do everything wrong every kind of relationship. It's a satire of everything. It's making fun of everything. 
um, Chip Chilla, which Frank Fleming is one of the writers for. And so is uh, Ethan it, Nicole, best it, known for Axe yeah. Cop and previously the Babylon Bee. Yep. And that is just a positive family. It, it's about a dad that's just having fun with his kids. Uh, so in the first episode, they're reenacting the moon landing. And the second episode, he has them uh, kind of be uh, kind of independent journalists or whatever, go around, capture the news. And there's this whole interesting kind of narrative about what the news is or what it should be versus what it can can tend to be like just gossip and tattling and activism and stuff like that. So there's, there's a little bit of the daily wire ethos in, in that where they're, where, cause you know, a lot of what they do in their punditry is really taking aim at a lot of mainstream news and showing how corrupt, honestly, a lot of it has become, but it's still just fun. Like our, our <laughs> cause like, so one moment that our kids love is when, uh, the, the little, uh, chinchilla children you know they they take a picture of someone picking their nose and they're like oh got a nose picker here and that's like the front page story for the little neighborhood newspaper and then it turns out the kid was just scratching his nose or so he says you know and so it's this whole like back and forth and it's pretty funny right that's but but it kind of shows an important message about you know getting your facts straight and not just pushing some narrative so there was some good values there but overall it was just a fun story and as we sampled some of the other stories um my youngest daughter kept saying can we please go back to chip chilla <laughs> can we watch another chip chilla like she was really hooked on that show and and so she genuinely liked it it wasn't you know like okay go go eat your vegetables and watch the show kids about uh, tax reform or whatever uh it, it was just an enjoyable series and yeah i like how jeremy said this is what he hopes is his legacy like he he hopes that, you know, 20 years from now, he's at some political conference and someone comes up to him and says, oh, I grew up watching, you know, Bent Key Kids. I love those shows and now I'm showing them to my kids. And yeah, I, I think that's the way to do it because how often do we go back and listen to like a day or a week old or a month old podcast that's about. Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, right? never. Right. So it, these are the things that will last. Uh, but in terms of like how he's trying to do better by creating these, you know, he's hired some really talented people. Uh, Frank is a guy I've, I've known just sort of a little from, you know, online interactions and he's here in the same town, but Frank, uh, he, he had like pinned on his, uh, Twitter profile for a long time, even before the daily wire stuff, he said, uh, I'm trying to talk less about politics. So if you see me talking about about, you know, Joe Biden or Trump, just say, stop it, Frank. <laughs> and so there very much is this mission among a lot of conservative culture creators to, to make it less about these, you know, urgent kinds of political issues and more just about things that are good and true. But, but Stephen, you know, this whole thing about the, the chinchilla family being a functional family where the dad is sort of leading the family and he's a positive role model. I mean, that in itself is kind of a political statement, which is sad to say that. But again, compared to The Simpsons, totally different story that it's telling. Is it political, though, unless someone associates that right. kind of traditional Judeo-Christian morality with politics? Well, sure. you can then have a conversation about uh, how that association was made. Did the critic make that association or did the, you know, bad, abusive, you know, politics and religion confusing 
Christian leader or, you know, abusive Christian parents, like did that person make that association? Like either way, I know it is out there. And so it's something to be aware of. Uh, And so it's something it sounds like they're aware of, uh, which is where they seem to have gone through the philosophy. Okay. Yes, technically this is political, but I'd say it's counter political. I don't know if I would agree with this characterization that, well, this is a political act. I think that it is a, a, a counter political act. It, it is um, sure. cordoning off the politics into its own sphere. Like, okay, this far shall you come, but no further. You are necessary to engage in, uh, not only for the needs of the day, but also because this is very profitable. And, and that leads me to the fact that Boring is a CEO. He is running a for-profit business. He's not running a ministry. And that should lead to a question among Christians. Like, do we view books, story creation, things like that, primarily as a ministry, in which case, you know, hey, support the ministry. We're changing lives, even if, uh, you know, we're not making a profit, uh, but we got to feed our family. Some worker is worthy of his wages, so please support us. Or do we view it as a business? And a business can be a little more ruthless, I think. Uh, you're a little, I mean, obviously you're more profit driven. Uh, you want to grow the business, not shrink it. Uh, you're not just in it to pay people and go home. Like you want to expand the business. You want to grow. You want to make a return on your investment. These are biblical economic principles that are, you know, things that Jesus assumes in his parables, but it's different when you're selling stories and art versus selling uh, widgets or food or tractor parts or something that you can touch with your hands or install on a vehicle. Boring has a very interesting approach earlier in that interview, talking about how either way, you know, whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit, if you're a good one anyway, your goal is still to serve your audience. And he says, quote, At Daily Wire, I've always said part of our job as lowercase r Republicans, so not political Republicans, but, you know, just thinking about uh, interacting with people, is to represent our audience, never to betray our audience, but also to help lead our audience to the thing they actually want. Now, this is an interesting uh, distinction between, you know, are we going to do what we want and don't care what the audience wants, or are we just going to give the audience what they want all the time? Because frankly, right now, too many people want clickbait. They want those dopamine hits. They want the distraction. They want to feel good. They want to feel like they're part of a big thing uh, that some hero out there uh, is uh, beating their enemies for them uh, while they get the convenience of listening from a safe distance. Like that, that's what a lot of people want. And I'm trying not to judge that, but I do sound a little skeptical. And frankly, there's a little part of me that's like that. And I don't like it. That's the difference. Uh, if you are trying to figure out what the audience really wants and boring is saying, you know what, what the audience really wants is stories that their kids will love stories that they at least won't hate uh something that you do want to go back to and watch again you don't do that zach it's a huge point here you don't do that with a podcast episode from two years ago that's just about politics and and frankly we want our fantastical truth episodes to be just as relevant or almost as relevant two years later that's a big difference but it is more of a long-term investment what we're doing uh, trying to cultivate uh, this kind of view of humanity and imagination. When Zach, if you and I decided, you know, we're just going to pack up this whole Lorehaven thing and do some politics stuff, I bet you and I could be doing this full time right now. Why aren't we doing that? Because we don't want to. I don't want to do that stuff full time. Like, I don't mind doing it on the side. Maybe Earth 2 Steven is, uh, is, is doing that, you know, in that same universe uh, where James Patterson gets to run for high office. But Earth 1 Steven, the only one that exists, much prefer stories and humanity and stuff. And that's why I'm interested in what they're doing because they're like right in the middle of both of them. Yeah. Well, I promised you a little bit of a curveball that I was going to throw in this episode. And it's this whole statement about 
giving the audience what they really want. So here's where this gets kind of tricky because when I think about what Naomi wants for our kids, the main thing she wants is less screen time. (laughs) She wants them to be reading or going out and playing or just creating things. Um, And so, yes, it's great to have, you know, we, we do have chunks of screen time we give them throughout the week and Hey, I'd, I'd much rather let them loose with bent key than with the uh, Disney app, which we canceled anyway, or with Netflix, frankly. Uh, But what we want is, is just less entertainment, I guess on the TV. Uh, And so it's just interesting just to make a macro comment here. Obviously this is a podcast about stories, entertainment and stuff like that. So this is kind of the, the sandbox we're playing in, but it just makes me wonder like, why, why do we live in such a media centric culture? Like what, why do we have so much of a focus on entertainment? But on the other hand, like if they really want this to succeed, they better start making merchandise, you know, chip chilla, you know, action figures or something like that. Oh, that, that, I think uh, those are on the way. Those are how everything on else the way. happens. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. That's where the money is. Like certain yeah. shows have been canceled. Like even kids shows have been canceled because they weren't selling enough merch. Right. Uh, I think that's what happened to the young justice animated series, for example. But even those sorts of things are changing. You know, people are deciding, you know what? I want to watch that show without commercial breaks or the little fade to black on streaming straight through uh, no commercials, or at least there weren't any commercials before uh, because I, I want to pay for the story directly. I don't want to pay the advertisers you know, who then pay for the story and, you know, and then just do this little end run. I think that can improve the perceived value of the stories themselves. Like it, it is, I think a positive of the whole streaming revolution. I think that altogether, Zach, you know, with, with all the lingering questions, and uh, by the way, Zach, you didn't say anything about the shows being cheesy or anything. Uh, no. Wait, before I, I get to my next point, did y'all watch anything but Chip Chilla or just that one? That's the animated no, show. Yeah, so we watched uh, several shows. We watched Kid Explorer, which is this uh, young guy named Broadcast Cal. And the episode we watched, he goes through the history of phones. So that was kind of funny. Uh, no, that's super political though. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) He goes all the way back to, you know, the telegraph and then the, the corded phone and then the brick phone, like the cell phone, you know, that uh, Zach Morris had in saved by the bell and that your grandpa probably had in his car that my grandpa had in his car, the bag phone. Oh yeah. And then then the, uh, the flip phone, the Motorola StarTac that I had in college. And that the one with the little spindly antenna. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't think the antenna went up. It just, it was like a clamshell. Okay. And then, you know, the Blackberry, the iPhone and, and so on. But it was, it, it was kind of funny cause it's like, oh wow. I mean the, the, my, by the way, my college major was telecommunications engineering. And so I, I was really dialed into this for that reason, but I think it was kind of funny for our kids to kind of learn about all this. Like, yes, there, there was technology before the iPhone, you know? <laughs> So that was okay. Um, it wasn't, they, they enjoyed it, but it was like, let's get back to chip chilla. Cause that's like a fun story. Uh, then we watched uh truck games, which was about a grandfather truck sending his like grandkid trucks on these adventures, uh, geared towards like pretty young kids. And then uh tish tash, which is mostly just kind of silly fun. Um, so just very, very harmless, wholesome kinds of stories. And yeah, I'd, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind our kids watching any of these on their own. There, there are some, there's at least one show that's for older kids called runes. And I started to watch that with my teenagers and it's sort of like a King Arthur, uh, you know, medieval fantasy type story that looked, that looked pretty cool. I, I like the animation on that. 
Now, I don't know if that's one of the ones that Daily Wire produced or they, they have four licensed. or five shows of their own and there are licensed shows from other yeah. countries that they're vetting for content. You know, they've decided, okay, we're not going to bring in stuff with you know, sexuality as agenda or, or ham-handed uh, political stuff. So right. it's a very interesting approach and it helps, I think, to give them a lot more content out of the gate. And it also kind of maybe follows that Netflix model of just kind of rounding up all of the uh, shows that are just kind of available, even if they're junk. Although it seems like uh, Daily Wire is a little bit more quality focused there. And then Netflix uses that stuff or has used that stuff then to make their own shows. And then they keep getting more and more quality shows until, like, by the way, you know, Netflix knocked it out of the park with their One Piece uh, season one. And then I just watched the trailer for Avatar The Last Airbender live action, and it was good. I am, I am more than cautiously optimistic now. I am moderately optimistic and maybe even bordering on very optimistic. So, this model seems to work and it seems to lead more toward quality rather than away from quality as some of the other streaming platforms are doing. So well, we could get into the weeds there. I think the point is that this is going to make or break, I think, cultural conservatism. Are you just going to tear down what's there without an alternative or are you going to offer an alternative? And mm. it's not just the Christian alternative, you know, that's funded by donors who are desperate, regardless of whether the thing that the nonprofit ministry is making is actually good. Uh, Adventures and Odyssey being a huge, huge exception to this. Uh, having it be profit-driven has some drawbacks, but uh, I think also has some uh, some real well, advantages. But you know what this has really done more than anything, Stephen? It's pulled back the curtain and showed us that all of our entertainment is funded by big corporate interests with certain ideological goals. Absolutely. So, Always has been. Yeah, and so I... I I, I think the critics of Bentkey are, are sort of missing that point, right? That's like, oh, well, all the other entertainment out there is neutral. Well, yeah, no, there is not. no neutral space. The neutral world is gone. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And there's more to come, by the way. Uh, not just this uh, Snow White movie. That may get its own episode in the future as to whether you can have an alternative like that. Uh, it's so, uh, so directly a competitor. Um, I think in theory, I would prefer uh, stories that, you know, like they they go do a straight up retelling of the Snow Queen, for example, yeah. you know, and that would still get headlines because I, okay, I we're going to go back to the original, you know, not you know, Frozen kind of loosely followed that, but you know, like there's a boy with a piece of glass in his eye, you know, there's all kinds of weird stuff in the original fairy tale that that, that could really bear out with an interesting adaptation. But Snow White gets the clicks because everybody's talking about it and everybody's mad. Yeah. Can you then perform then this cultural judo move? of almost respecting what the audience wants, you know, fire and brimstone against Disney or enemies or whatever, but then turn that around and go, wait a minute, I was expecting fire and brimstone, but instead I just got this really refreshing Snow White movie that felt really original and traditional at the same time. I almost feel convicted that I wanted fire and brimstone. Instead, I mm. got this, this, this lovely fantasy musical. Like, that's yeah. what I'd love to see happen. Yeah, and I'm guessing yeah. that's the goal of some of mm-hmm. them, but you can kind of play both sides and there is a risk to that. But I also recognize that this is the world where we are now. People feel the need for the urgent and, uh, you know, the light or more heat than light. Maybe we've got to go through the heat to get to more of the light. Let's see. Uh, But that may already be underway, at least from these folks. Um, One thing, too, that Boring has said specifically, he is very inspired by. And in fact, is uh, proved to be deeply life changing enough that we probably need to do an episode about this. Is a Christian-made fantastical series by Stephen Lawhead. The first book released in 1987 called Taliesin. It's book one of the five or six book Pendragon Cycle series. 
I must say that I'm catching up to this late. I've read one or two Stephen Lawhead books, but never this one, never this series. I'm now about four hours away from finishing this audiobook. This book works on two different levels. First, the idea of somebody making a series out of this to build a new culture is meta because the story itself is about people who flee from their old destroyed world and have to start again and how this leads somehow to connect to the Arthurian mythology. Lawhead literally waves in the uh, weaves in the Atlantis myth and everything uh and it is high fantasy stuff guys and it's good. And it's deeply Christian, too. It's deeply Christian even before people start talking about Jesus. But they do talk about Jesus overtly, and people get saved and everything. So if you need that sort of thing, hang in there. You get to it about 80% of the way through, as far as I can tell. And it's wonderful when that happens. And yet it will also challenge you, because Druids are finding Jesus in a different sort of way. And and yet there's also exclusive salvation there. Uh, I don't know about Lawhead's faith specifically, but here it is deeply, deeply Christian. And as Boring talks about it, this seems like it was his Narnia. We ask people on this podcast, when did you make Aslan your Lord and Savior? Boring got a hold of this fantastical series, uh, and it changed his life, and it helped him see the value, not just of Arthurian legend and what it means for Western civilization, but Judeo-Christian ethics writ large in a fantastical world. And by the way, I'd say that this story, although it's very long and very detailed and very intricate, uh, is appropriate so far for older teens. Uh, there's no bad language in here. Um, any of the uh, romantic relationships are extremely chaste. There's references to husbands and wives having a good time, but it's totally, totally, totally behind like a fade to black to the fade to black to the fade to black. Yeah, that's um, really, that's it's really a great story. Yeah, I, it is. I, I'll tell you what, out, out of all the things they're producing, this is the thing I'm the most excited for. I've watched, uh, you know, some of the behind the scenes stuff that boring has put out. Okay. Um, See, I have I, not done that because there are yeah. spoilers from the books in there and I oh, haven't yeah. finished the first I'm, book yet. I'm actually fine with spoilers for some reason. I'm usually d- avoid spoilers, but here's why I'm so excited, Stephen. They could have taken the easy route and tried to do a Lord of the Rings ripoff, like, or try to get the rights and do their own Lord of the Rings to kind of counter. Oh, the, that's right. They could have done the troll thing with the Rings of Power. Okay. Right, like with Rings of Power. Yeah, so like they the are thing, doing this thing this already. Okay. Yeah. And, or they could have taken a lesser known or quasi original property and done like the discount version of Lord of the Rings. And so, so here's an example of that on, um, Apple arcade, the, the iOS, you know, iPhone, uh, game service, which, uh, we, we have for the kids cause it's, uh, there's no ads, there's no in-app purchases. There's no other weird stuff. Um, they, they have some like, you know, triple A titles like Pac-Man or Sonic the Hedgehog or whatever. But then they have a lot of like discount versions of things. And in the, the premiere, one I'm thinking of is called ocean horn, which is a total ripoff of legend of Zelda. And I tried to like it. I'm just like, this is just reminding me of Zelda and why this is not as good as Zelda. And so I just, I quickly lost interest in it. And so I love that, that daily wire is taking a well-known and well-respected uh, property and and really giving it a fair shot as a as a TV series. So uh, yeah, I I will gladly watch this and and tell people to watch it because it it looks like they're doing everything right in in producing this and while at the same time respecting their audience, but you know giving their audience like uh, treating their audience like adults. And so here here's what I mean by that. Uh, one of the movies they put out 
you know, like you mentioned this last year was, I think it's called shut in. And it's about this, uh, single mom who's trying to protect her son from this, uh, you know, her daughter, I think her her daughter from this like abusive, you know, drug addict. Uh, and you know, and, and it's, uh, it's a pretty intense show. Right. And it obviously has, uh, very villainous, evil characters and, and just some hard things to talk about. So it's not in that sense, like a family friendly thing, but it's a pro family movie. It's a pro traditional values, right? Cause it, I mean, you, you could maybe debate about, you know, the, the dad being a drug addict, the mom being the hero, you, you could go into all those kind of narratives, but it, it was showing the reality of the world, but with a, with a heroic journey in the story. And that's what I think makes a good story. It's, it's not. When the story is about the heroes, I think it's usually going to be a good story. When the story is like a a sneering, condescending view of the villains, like whoever you paint the villains as, that's when it gets bad. And the way that I see them doing the Pendragon cycle is to focus on the heroes of the story. Well, one of these days, a dream guest would be Stephen Lawhead, but I think he lives out in a cairn somewhere in Ireland. Uh, may not even have electricity and running water. Uh, you know, you have to send an owl to get him. Uh, <laughs> that would be wonderful to say, hey, what, what do you think about this? Uh, you know, you're, you're fairly somewhat obscure um, fantasy series, like obviously very Judeo-Christian influence, very, very Christian friendly, and yet exploring Arthurian legend and with a lot more of a broader readership. Like this just on paper is a, sounds like a great story. And then I can confirm that it certainly starts out. It, it's a wonderful story. I'm, I'm definitely appreciating it. Like, what, what, what do you think about it now being a TV show? Like, no one's made a TV adaptation of a Stephen Lawhead story before. And right. in fact, you can probably count on one hand the number of film adaptations made by fantastical authors who would be the sort who would be on this podcast or you know, have their books reviewed by Lorehaven. Like, it's other than Lewis or Tolkien, you know, <laughs> the kind of books that yeah. we would book. And it's great for. to have an, a newer author, you know, like right. from our generation and not just like rehashing because I'm also sick of all the remakes, like whoever's doing them. So I love that this is a new story that hasn't come to the screen before. Yeah, well, just so it's quality. And they're saying all the right things about quality and not just, oh, yeah, we don't want to be cheesy. We want to be quality. Like, it's too easy to say that. I need you to articulate not only that you know how to do this or you know that people can do this sort of thing, but I need you to articulate why. Why stories? Why stories? And Boring talks about how when he was a kid, he did a fan fiction screenplay based on this series just oh, by himself he is, so this like, is personal for him very it's personal fun. deeply personal i resonate with that not just as you know an aspiring storyteller myself uh but just because now i can see okay i i see now what you liked about this story and i see that all along you know while i'm subscribing to daily wire and you know uh, enjoying some of the punditry but mainly looking for the longer term culture building stuff like this story a christian fantastical story was in the DNA of this organization, was in the foundation of this group all along. And so that gives me cause for optimism. That also gives me cause to encourage other faithful storytellers out there. For any authors listening to this show, like make your story a great one. Do not shy away from uh, the Christian worldview stuff. Uh, get bold about it, but also understand what stories are for and keep at it because you never know some guy who runs a pundit podcasting empire could come along 30, 40 years later and say, Hey, I want to turn that into a streaming drama. Cause that's what's happening right now with a uh, Stephen lawhead story. And then another encouragement, I guess, as we uh, draw to a close here, I know we ran it over time, but it's worth it. I think that also encourages us to see some place for punditry. 
some place for even maybe a little clickbait. I mean, guys, we have clickbait titles for this podcast. I think it can be used for good, not always evil. Uh, Because that's the stuff that people want. And yes, people's hearts are not always right. Do not follow your heart. It will often lead you into sin. But sometimes people like junk food and clickbait can be junk food. Now, do you just eat junk food the rest of your life? No, that's your responsibility. Does the guy who make the junk food uh, bear moral responsibility for making you eat it and nothing else? Not really. It is profitable. Can you then take that profit and turn it toward good, turn it toward healthier, longer lasting, nourishing meals like fantastical stories uh, and entertaining stuff uh, that cultivates kids imagination? I think you can. I think we might be seeing that here. So I'm cautiously optimistic. And so, yeah, I, I repeat my answer. Political pundits might create great fantastical stories or even better. They will hire and pay, could hire and pay uniquely talented people to do this and the jury's out whether they're good but if they're good or if they're just okay either way we'll be talking about it here whether it's the snow White and the evil queen uh, the kids shows uh, and this pen dragon cycle series that we're so excited about well for our conversation today we would love your answers to this question how do you feel when your favorite creators share political punditry uh, whether you agree with it, disagree with it, what do you think? Is that breaking the genre or do you like engaging kind of on that, uh, that extra level with these creators? Um, send us your notes to podcast at lorehaven.com or comment anywhere you see this on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or you can go to lorehaven.com and find the episode page. Quick mission update while we fire up the ovens for Thanksgiving week. Uh, we're actually going to break uh, Thanksgiving week on Tuesday, November the 21st. No Fantastical Truth episode. Listen ye not. Do not expect it to drop in your subscriber feed. It won't be there. But we will be back on the 28th of November uh, for our next episode. And then, by the way, we'll have another break uh, similarly around uh, late December for Christmas. Uh, recent book review at lorehaven.com. We try to review the best Christian made fantastical novels every Friday. And we just got a hold of the mermaid's tale by L E Richmond. That review is now up. I think book, book reviews may be also going on hiatus uh, for a bit as uh, people move into the holidays, but uh, you can subscribe free to get those updates and to join the Lorehaven guild. Just go to lorehaven.com slash subscribe next on fantastical truth. Have we talked enough about C.S. Lewis at Lorehaven? Of course we haven't, and let's get ready for more. Later this month marks a new occasion called C.S. Lewis Reading Day. It's on November the 29th, and it's founded by the Pints with Jack podcast to celebrate our favorite quotes, fantasy and nonfiction by the famed scholar of medieval literature and languages plus Christian fantastical truth, C.S. Lewis. And in that episode, we will tour our shelves full of Lewis's work, and we will ask which of his books are the best. Meanwhile, whether or not you listen to political podcasts, we're glad you listened to this one. We're glad, uh, especially if you're not all that thrilled with pundits and stuff, uh, that you're open to those things. I think that God has made people different with different levels of interest in that kind of thing and different levels of calling. And it's worth trying to sort all that stuff out, especially in the complicated areas where you suddenly find that the guys doing politics also want to make possibly great fantastical stories. Let's keep an eye out and hope for Christ's sake that they are great stories as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. 